Jesus, would you open our eyes so that we're able to see? Would you open our ears so that we're able to hear? Would you open our mind and our heart so that we're able to understand? So that we could turn to you and be healed. Amen. In Matthew 4, it begins like this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Is there any more terrifying line in the Bible? That the Spirit would lead Jesus into the wilderness so that Jesus might be tempted by the devil. The wilderness was Jesus' entrance into ministry. And in that place, he was led there by the Spirit to wage war with the one who hates our souls. The desert is the wilderness. It's another way of translating that word. In Scripture, the wilderness is a place where demons roam. It's where wild beasts seek to devour you. In the wilderness, you're exposed to scorching heat. Your body's laid bare to the elements. You're vulnerable. In the wilderness, life exists on the jagged edge. In the wilderness, sometimes you walk in circles, not knowing where you're going, when the next disaster will strike. What crisis, what heartache will land next? Moses can tell you that in the wilderness, you get overwhelmed by administration, by decisions, by demands, by expectations, by so many needs. Moses can tell you that in the wilderness, the people who've heard all the Bible stories and know all the prayers, people who seem to have all the theological lingo, they still really easily go and worship those mammoth golden calves. And your heart breaks. In the wilderness, you question who you are. You question what you're doing. People disappoint you. Doubts overwhelm. Often wilderness is a place of disaster and abandonment. Rarely do we expect anything good to happen in the wilderness. And this was Jesus' entrance into his public ministry. His ministry meant it was time for him to enter that long, grueling trek into the wilderness. Whenever we follow the Spirit, it seems, we are eventually going to be led into the wilderness. 
We shouldn't expect anything different. Seems maybe we should add a line to our ordination vows. Will you, in fear and trembling, follow God into the wilderness? I was thinking this week, um, as my mind and heart couldn't leave this passage, of how in this moment, I probably don't need to spend any time at all convincing you about the wilderness. I know that the last years have been soul-crushing, disillusioning, exhausting. They have revealed so much. They have forced us to face questions in our own soul and in the souls of the communities where we pastor and love that maybe we thought we would never have to face. And in very personal ways, I know, although I, I don't know who, but I know that in this room right now that some of you are facing deep, profound wildernesses of your soul. For some of you, it was probably doing everything you could to drag yourself to this space. And maybe this is the last place you want to be. You're carrying with you immense pain. Marriages that are on the brink Places in your heart and soul where you don't think you have anything left to give or to carry. Some of us even feel the wilderness more acutely when we walk into a room like this. Because uh, we pastors, um, we are really, really good at comparison. We start to feel all the tensions and the shame and the judgment and the we tell the stories, and we try to tell them in ways that sound humble, but we realize our ego is always kicking in. Of course, this isn't the whole truth. The wilderness is the place where God is. The wilderness is the place where God finds us. The wilderness is where God speaks through a burning bush through a small cloud, through a raven, through a widow, through a rock, through a pillar of fire. Even if we thought we were abandoned, even if we thought we were forgotten for 40 years, the wilderness can turn out to be our salvation. But it's a salvation, as every salvation is, that requires God. We will never work our way out of the wilderness on our own. We don't have enough skill. We don't have enough wisdom. We don't have enough energy. We don't have enough theological power and muscle. We will never find our way out of the wilderness unless God comes and finds us. But the wilderness story for Jesus, it doesn't actually begin with that temptation. It's just a few verses before it. You know it better than I do. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, 
and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is my son with whom in whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The gospels tell us that just before Jesus entered those 40 days of hell in the wilderness, first Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. Jesus stepped into the water. When he came up out of that water drenching wet, God the Father's voice bellowed, and I actually love the way Luke and Mark tell it. It's more direct. You are my son, beloved. With you, I am well pleased. The words of a father speaking strong and tenderly to a child. Father telling Jesus what he really needed to hear, who he was. This is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. These were the words Jesus most needed to hear before he entered the wilderness. These are the words that all of us have to hear before we enter the wilderness. If everything else that we do is not grounded in the unflinching love of God, we can't hear anything else right. If we don't hear God's words of delight and love, the wilderness will ravage us. This feels a little tender to me actually at this moment. Our youngest son is 17, turns 18 next month. We moved from Virginia to Michigan last year, his junior year. It was a bad time to move. Um, he moved into a really big school. Everybody's masked. There's no good way for a junior to enter in anyway with no sports. Um, and it was a crushing year for him. And... Basically, every day at school, he sat by himself at lunch. He told me a week or two ago he felt humiliated every day. and He would bury his head in his phone to try not to, you know, look like he cared. So about a week ago, uh, in a course of like two to three days, we decided to help him move back to Charlottesville for his senior year. We asked a good family friends that were in our church and they welcomed him with open arms. And as far as all that's concerned, it's the best case scenario it could be. But um, I was radically unprepared 
for my son to be gone. I thought I had one more cycle. <laughs> we love college football at our house, the two of us do. And, and we watch games every weekend. We have rituals with food and the whole thing and the clothes we wear. It's really ridiculous. And since our oldest son went off to college, my Monday night dinners with my sons became just dinners with me and him every Monday night. And I thought I had another year, and I don't. And the morning that he left was last Tuesday, and my wife was about to pull out the driveway with him, and I'd been a wreck for three or four days. We all had been. And before he left, I just, he's tall now, he's bigger than me, and I had to grab his face in my hands. And kind of like this moment, I, I couldn't hold back the tears. I, my heart was so um, glad for him, sad, proud, broken. And what I just wanted him to hear was like, Seth, because I have big questions about, like I wanted another year or two to help shape his heart toward God. He's that kid that I, I don't know how this is gonna play out. <laughs> um, and I'm not in control, but I'm realizing I'm so not in control. And so I'm holding his head. I just want him to remember, it's like, Seth, you're my son. Remember how much you're loved. And I'm telling him, I'm not telling y'all, I don't apologize for tears here, but with him, I was feeling, I was like, sorry, you just got to see me cry. I can't help it. I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I just want you to remember this year that you are so loved, that you are my son, that you are God's son. And watching him pull out, you know, I'm just heartbroken. But what comes to my mind as, as the day wears on is, is precisely this moment where the father speaking to a child who is our brother, Jesus, and says, what you need to know in this moment, you are about to be carried into the wilderness. You are about to be tempted in the most deepest possible way. You need to know that you are my son. Absolute delight, complete love. Know this before you go to the place of your testing. I still have a letter in my drawer from my mom who's been dead for six years and who would be in her mid-70s now if she were still alive. And it's a note she wrote to me while I was in seminary, basically telling me that she was proud of me. I turned 50 in two months. I cling to that letter. These are words that we have to hear before we can offer true words to others. This isn't a one-time epiphany. This is a reality that we have to cling to like it's water in the desert. We have to live in the world where we are drowning in God's delight. We have to exist in the economy of God's love Difficulty, though, is that 
hearing those words does require a baptism. <laughs> it requires death. Most of the people I know that I trust at this stage in my life who seem to speak from a deep place of knowing God, being human, who are at least learning how to deal with their ego, their questions. They're people who have died a good death. They're people who have wrestled with pain. And somehow in those dark and despairing places have heard God's voice of delight. And God's the only one who can speak this blessing, this belovedness to you. Here's the warning for us, one of them, I think. We do violence to our churches and our families and our relationships and our own soul whenever we're trying to get other people to tell us who we are, to tell us that we're beloved. But if we haven't heard that voice telling us that we're beloved, we will exert immense energy trying to get someone else to tell us. We work our fingers to the bone trying to build a successful church so that we will feel beloved. We try to meet people's needs and expectations so they will treat us as if we are beloved. We work to be the expert I mean, it's okay because we're the God expert, but the expert. We close off our hearts to others. We project an image. We become absorbed by addictions. We have affairs. We crave others' acceptance. We bend toward others' opinions. We succumb to cynicism when people disappoint us and leave us, and all of a sudden we realize our work isn't having nearly the impact that we thought. And so long as our identity is tied to that rather than to the voice of God telling us we're beloved, we will wreak havoc. It's interesting that Jesus in Matthew's telling does basically no action until after the baptism. It's before he builds a church. It's before he preaches a great sermon. It's before he writes a book. It's before someone looks to him as being wise. It's before he begins to have, see his impact. His belovedness comes first. Until we hear the voice of Jesus peering into the depths of our soul and saying, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. There is a cavern inside us that we will seek to fill. I wanted to, to read you a short, short section from Henry Nouwen. It's from In the Name of Jesus. You've probably read it. I have the impression that many of the debates within the church around issues such as dot, 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 and I'm not going to read them, partly because they're mostly the same ones we have and also because it doesn't matter. Take place on a primarily moral level. 
On that level, different parties battle about right or wrong, but that battle is often removed from the experience of God's first love, which lies at the base of all human relationships. Christian leaders cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. Christian leaders cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. Their leadership must be rooted in the permanent, intimate relationship with the incarnate word, Jesus, and they need to find there the source the source for their words, advice, and guidance. Through the discipline of contemplative prayer, Christian leaders have to learn to listen again and again to the voice of love and to find there the wisdom and courage to address whatever issues presents itself. Hear this. Dealing with burning issues without being rooted in a deep personal relationship with God, easily leads to divisiveness because before we know it, our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. But when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, with the one who tells you you are beloved, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. If we haven't heard the Father call us the beloved, we will bend to every other voice, every anxious voice, every shaming voice, every powerful voice, every wealthy voice, every competitive voice, every voice of expectation and drivenness and abuse of power, and every posture that may not always exactly be a lie, but it sure as heck isn't the truth. And we don't have time to go there, but you could take some time and you could ponder the temptations Jesus faces in the wilderness and how with each one of them, the first question the tempter asks is, if it's true that you're the son. He had to know first that he was the son. We have to know that we're the daughter, that we're the son. Otherwise, we'll be tempted turn a stone to bread, to grab good things in an unholy way. We'll be tempted to jump off the pinnacle of the mountain. Bold leadership. To bend and receive all the kingdoms of the world, we will grab and with our dying breath, we will cling to power. But if we're the daughter, if we're the son if we've already died, if we know that God holds our very future in his hands, if we know that God is good and God is for us and God is delighted in us and not even hell can rip that away, if we know that we can be bold and courageous because what's the worst they can do? I'm beloved. 
And I want to, I want to tell the people that I'm with that they're beloved. If they can't hear that, I don't have anything else to say. They can't see their neighbor as beloved in God. I don't know what else to give. If we know and if we hear again and again that we are beloved, then we can stand in the terrors of the world. We can stand in the wild places. We can live free. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.